This is my conversation with David Stasevaj, the Dean for the Social Sciences and the Julius Silver Professor in New York University's Department of Politics and an affiliate professor in New York University School of Law. He is the author of The Decline and Rise of Democracy, A Global History from Antiquity to Today, published by Princeton University Press in June 2020. This book provides a new understanding of early democracy in multiple world regions. It explains the survival in Europe and disappearance in China and the Middle East. And it then traces the long evolution of modern democracy while highlighting its internal tensions. Exploring the deep history of democracy, both early and modern, can teach us much about our current anxieties. David is an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he has also authored several previous books, including Taxing the Rich, A History of Fiscal Fairness in the United States and Europe, a book that charts the evolution of progressive taxation in 20 countries over the last two centuries. David also has a number of recent papers on these and related topics. Okay. Hi, David. How are you? Hi. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start with like a basic, basic question. What exactly is democracy? Well, I, you know, it, it, in many countries today, we, if you stop someone on the street and you say what a democracy is, and they might tend to think of elections with uh, political parties and hopefully free and fair elections where all adults can participate. And that's certainly the way in which we can conceive of the institutions of democracy today. But I think democracy itself has a, a deeper meaning going back to the original word democratia as um, put together by the Greeks, which just means that the people have power. And so the question about if you're in a democracy, if the people have power in, in our modern democracies, uh, the system of elections with competitive political parties and universal suffrage is the way in which we seek to have um, it be the case that the people have power. So what's the difference between early democracy and the democracy we know today? I mean, has it evolved or is it just our understanding of the world? I think it's evolved quite a bit. Early democracies, as they existed in many societies, not just European ones, tended to often involve direct forms of participation that were deep in terms of participation in councils and assemblies. Um, in many cases, they didn't involve mass participation, but they may have had a substantial fraction of the population participating in one way or another. Uh, these were often small scale affairs um, and sometimes uh, limited to a single community or to a group of communities or to a smaller state. Our, our modern democracies are, are, are very different in the way we operate in that for most people, that political participation only happens at election time, which happens every few years. So participation is very broad. Ideally, all adults, uh, if there are no restrictions on the suffrage, de facto or de jure restrictions. Um, but the participation risks not being particularly deep to the extent that people feel like they're not getting what they want and that they're not having the opportunity to participate in the same in the same way by, by you know, only voting every few years. So those are the core distinctions. So, I mean, what was the difference back then? Because like, I know that women didn't have the same rights as we have now, or like slaves. Slaves were not allowed to vote. So when did this migration happen? When did this change? And like, was there something that we can like trace back? Because I know it took a while for the US, but like, let's talk about in a global scale. It's not just like, again, democracy. I know a lot of Western thought assumes that like democracy started in 
uh, the European continents, but that is not the case. So would you want to take us back to where it started, where the initial like, you know, signs of democracy were there? Well, I mean, if you go back to Athens, then uh, you have, yes, uh, adult males participating, free adult males, but there's a substantial slave population in Athens uh, mm -hmm. that um, has no right to participate. Uh, women have absolutely no political role in, in Athens, uh, which is, uh, you know, something we never need to forget. Uh, early democracies elsewhere, um, like in the North American continent, among Native American groups like the ones we call the Huron, they call themselves the Wendat or the uh, Haudenosaunee, who we call the Iroquois, actually had extensive participation uh, of one way or another, not just for men, but also for women. Uh, in fact, women would participate in, uh, not participate in council meetings, but that they would have an effect in, in selecting uh, chiefs, for example. They could deselect chiefs also. Now, I think the, the key thing to remember about uh, the suffrage in modern times is that it evolved very slowly. The principle of voting had existed in European countries for a long time. Uh, if you go to a country like France, for example, from the 16th century onward, there is voting often at the municipal level to select people. But no one really thinks of having a universal suffrage until substantially later. Uh, it's something that's proposed by the group known as the Levellers in uh, Great Britain in the middle of the 17th century, but it doesn't go forward. And when we move to the North American continent, of course, uh, the suffrage exists in the colonial period, but it is restricted. Uh, you have to be ma a male, you have to be free uh, and white, uh, and um, often you need to own property as well. Uh, so it starts off as something that's really restricted and no one has the in in full intention of making it universal, but it does become universal over time. So what merits uh, were there in the old version of democracy that we don't see now? Or do you feel like we've, we've taken all the good thing, good bits and uh, the, the, the stuff that didn't work for us has already been like taken off, it's evolved over time? Or do you feel like there's some things that could be brought back? Well, it's a trade-off uh, in that our, our uh, modern democracies exist are able to exist at a much larger scale societies than before, right? That would have been the case with early democracy for the most case. Um, but the trade-off is that we have uh, more limited participation. For most people, you vote every few years for a representative. Maybe it's the representative you voted for who gets elected. Uh, the government is, on a daily basis is run by the bureaucracy that's controlled by the legislature. Uh, and so for most people at most times, political participation doesn't, isn't, isn't that um, extensive. It doesn't have to be that way, but it often is that way in our, in our current democracies. Uh, what, are, what are the catalysts that involved, were involved like when, like in any society or culture that would initiate democracies? Like what, what, why would a group of people want to have a system which would require, cause like certain things work and certain things don't. And like, it's not just like it, it started off in one specific place. It did like in numerous parts of the world, but like, were they common denominators in all of them? Well, I, I suspect the common denominator is just that people like having a say in how they're governed and how their, their lives are run. And so it's a system that has uh, immediate appeal. Uh, and it's a system that has, you know, talk about catalysts. I think for early democracy, the real catalyst was when rulers lacked alternative means of governing. Uh, they didn't have, if they didn't have a bureaucracy, for example, or a standing army or military, 
uh, then they would need to rule through a council or assembly of the people. And that's how we got early democracy. So early democracy is something that exists in lieu of a, in lieu of a modern state, as it were. So if I'm in a person in a position of power and I have control over the state, wouldn't I be like, you know, losing a little bit of my power if I were to make it a democracy where everyone has, you know, the right to like decide or like change the way the government system works? Isn't it not beneficial for someone who's on top? Right. It's not beneficial for someone who's on top compared to a system where you can just rule not literally on your own, but by, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bureaucratic subordinates. Yeah. But it's it's more given if you don't have bureaucratic subordinates, it's preferable to a situation where uh, you're not able to rule at all. Say, for example, if you face outside threats and you need to mobilize people for war or something like that, then you might uh, you might you might be brought to concede democracy and to agree that ultimately it's a it's a it's a, it's it's better than your rule failing entirely. What's like. Out of all the governing systems, why is democracy the most successful one then, or is it even? Well, that's that's uh, you know that's an open question. I mean, a lot of people associate democracy with being more successful in terms of growth, in terms of what have you, and there you know eternal policy debates about that. Um, I think most you know coming back to what I said a few minutes ago, one of the main reasons that people like democracy is that they like a sense of having control of their own lives, at least to some degree, by having a say in governance. And that's really the most important thing. It's not because it gets you, you know, slightly higher growth uh, per capita GDP or something like that. Um, but of course, there are, you know, there are a lot of arguments that have gone around about democracy being more successful, um, chiefly because for a long time in the 20th century, only rich countries were democracies. But now that's changed. We've seen that poorer countries can be democracies Two, and you know, a country to take an example of Ghana in West Africa, it's been a relatively stable democracy over the last few decades. It's still a poor country. It's not um, anywhere nearly as rich as countries in Europe or North America. Yet, in some ways, it has a democracy that's that's functioning very well. So, uh, which you know is 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 a useful thing to know for those who suggest that you know democracy is only possible in rich countries and that it makes your country rich. Hmm. So let's take the example of China, like the big elephant in the room. It's not a democracy, but it's relatively successful. Why is that? Well, uh, you could think uh, in terms of economic growth, uh, you could think of a, a lot of reasons, um, uh, some structural, some policy-based. Uh, it is a large country with a big market. Um, over history, it's often been one of the richer countries on earth. So it had something going for it at a time. It, it, it was only in, you know, the, the, the early modern period forward that China fell behind uh, Western Europe. And since the reforms in the post Mao era, China was able to marry sort of um, a uh, free market system to some extent with the, the maintenance of Communist Party rule. A lot, a lot of people wouldn't, didn't think that was going to work. Um, it seems to have worked up until now even if they're facing some headwinds now. Uh, and they have had good policies in terms of uh, education provision and things like that. So for example, um, you know, you can do a comparison of India and China on education provision. Uh, and uh, China reached something near like universal literacy 
um, much quicker than, 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 than India has, uh, despite the fact that India is a democracy and China is not. So policies, uh, large country, um, favorable conditions, I'd say. So wouldn't that be related to like the overall uh, economic finances? Like how much money does the government have to be able to like push it into the economy so that like, you know, there are better policies. It wouldn't necessarily mean that it's because it's not a democracy that they're able to like shine better than like, let's say a democratic country. No, I, I, I mean, it's sometimes presented that way. And I don't necessarily think that's the truth because for every, for, you know, for the, it is the Chinese example, but for every China, there is our unsuccessful autocracies out there. So you don't want to naturally assume that, um, that that model necessarily does better than democracy. I, mean, I know there are times where some people say, oh, that's, you know, so much the state is much more effective, but at some points it is. Uh, but there are also ways in it it's, it's ineffective. I mean, look at the way in which uh, the Chinese pattern of rule involves restricting information. And sometimes you need free information to flow for people to, to understand what's going on and, and what to do. Um, so yeah, I'm always thinking in terms of advantages and the disadvantages of democracy and autocracy and not thinking of, you know, the, the autocracy as being necessarily better performing or, uh, or democracy as ne necessarily better performing. I think it's, you know, we like democracy because it gives us a sense of governing ourselves and that in itself is, is critical. How has democracy, fa democracy failed us then? Like, what are the issues that like, we need to change or do you feel like maybe the word itself or our understanding of it needs to evolve so that like it's still a stable system well i don't think it has failed us to the extent that there's been failure we may have failed ourselves uh and, and I, it, when i say that what i think i mean is that for a long time it was taken that the current institutions of modern democracy that have spread across the globe were the end point of institutional development this is how you do it. Um, this is how we uh, construct a democracy that will be stable uh, and, and, and successful. And one of the things uh, I think we sort of recognize or should recognize more today, for a country like the US, for example, in the 1990s, people thought, oh, American democracy is so strong, this is wonderful. Now we have these huge problems of polarization and, and tension. Uh, we haven't thought much about what sort of investments need to be made. Uh, so that people feel more connected to each other. And so for people feel more connected to the, the state itself as well, in terms of civic education or what have you. So I think uh, part of the problem has come from not the fact that democracy uh, requires constant effort to keep it going and to be successful. It's not just a set of, set of institutions that sort of you wind up like a clock and that work on their own. So it's it's not a set it and forget it model, but then don't you think this is not more related to the system, but an information dissemination issue, like this whole thing with like Facebook misinformation, Twitter bots, and all of that is sabotaging in a in a way. Like there, there's this whole speak about maybe you know there's external parties coming into play where they're trying to infiltrate the way people think as group think, and that is affecting how we have lo lost trust in the government. So it's it's more. I mean, this could be completely <clears throat> propaganda and like me sharing more misinformation. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the it's it's uh, it's it's interesting if you go back to the sort of early 
uh, to the 1990s and the way people are talking about the internet and how it allowed communication over space. And uh, people are thinking, if you ask people at the time about the effect of the, likely a future effect of the internet on democracy, <clears throat> they generally had positive things to say. They said, well, that's gonna connect people better across large distances. Anything that connects people better is gonna, gonna work out well. Um, and it, you know, today, I don't think that many people feel that way, unfortunately, for exactly the reasons you've been describing in terms of disinformation and the type of things that people view. Uh, we have a world where we now have more, if you, as long as you have a smartphone, you have more information at your fingertips than you could possibly imagine before. But there are also uh, fewer institutional inter intermediaries, intermediaries to say like, I know this is coming from a trusted source as opposed to just who knows what, what origin. And that's critical. So what, what's your, how's your research contributing to understanding the challenges facing democracies today? Well, what I've tried to do in my book and some of my subsequent work is come back to this idea uh, I mentioned earlier, a few minutes ago, which is one way to think of it about democracy, it's never a finished task, that it requires not just developing a set of institutions, but continuing to make investments. And so I've written recently about the history of education in the early republic in the United States, and how that was seen by uh, people as something that needed to be used as a tool uh, via civic education to get people part to participate in the democratic system. Uh, and I think it was associated with a, a substantial increase in voter turnout over time and in democratic participation. Uh, and that was a good thing because from the vantage point of 1800, some people in the US were saying, you know, it's not obvious this thing is gonna work. How are people gonna get information? How are they gonna know what to do? How are they gonna want, know that they should focus on political, uh, political action in terms of voting as opposed to political action in terms of riots or, or rebellions or things like that? Oh, can you tell us a little bit between in your research, the link between democracy and taxation? Uh, so democracy and taxation, there are several different routes we could go down there. One is whether um, the first thing I think is that there's often a very clear link because uh, the origin of representative systems of government, at least in the European case, and I think not only there, um, had to do with the efforts by rulers to get their subjects to pay revenue. And there sort of was a, a quid pro quo of saying, I will pay you, but I want to have a say in how these things are spent and in how much is collected. So for there, there's a, there's a very direct link between democracy and, and taxation. Uh, the other question one might ask, and that goes from my, my previous book, is what is the effect of democracy on who gets taxed, on whether we tax the rich or the poor or the middle class, and in what proportion we do that? Do you feel like, have we gotten it right now? Because there's always like an outcry, it's like, you know what, the rich are not getting taxed enough, or the middle class are getting taxed so much that they can barely survive. Uh, is that something that you feel like will change after a certain point where I, I know that to a certain degree, we don't want to tax the rich so much that they, they are discouraged to open new businesses, to develop like research and like expand. Uh, how do you see, like from your perspective, a good system with taxation? Well, I, I, I think uh, the, the, the system of taxation ought to be used to instill a notion of fairness and it depends upon what the state is doing to benefit some and, and benefit others. It also depends upon 
how people are making their money to the extent that they're making their money through honest effort as opposed to like state handouts or things like that. Uh, I, I do believe we have lived through periods uh, in, 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 in a number of countries where taxes on the rich were somewhat higher than they are today. Um, and those periods were not a disaster. So it's an open question. I think one of the conclusions from my research though, is that, uh, and that's uh, in the book called Taxing the Rich with Ken Shivi, is that these big, big changes in the tax system tend to come at relatively infrequent intervals. Um, so I know there's a lot of debate if you read newspapers today about, well, for raising taxes, who we're going to raise taxes on. Um, within countries over time, those big changes happen um, relatively infrequently. And so I'm not sure that there's going to be a huge change on the horizon uh, within the next few years, um, barring some um, cataclysmic event that might make that necessary. But then, like, wouldn't you consider... COVID, not a cataclysmic, but an, an event that impacted a lot of economies. So would, wouldn't that be something that would kind of affect the way we like tax the rich or how we... Yeah, 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 you would. And it's interesting. I'm working and doing some survey work on this right now with um, Ken Shivi and a couple other people. And uh, it, it's, it's, it seems like in, in the UK, at least, where we're looking, COVID has had an impact on people's tax preferences, but not a huge one. They're slightly in favor of slight increases in, in the top rate of uh, income tax, which in the UK is now 45 pence on the, on the pound. Um, they're not in favor of increasing it to 70 pence or something like that, like existed in the, you know, in the 1970s. So, yeah, I think COVID, people thought about COVID in that way, and particularly because of the new inequalities or, or worsened inequalities due to COVID. But um from the perspective of the summer of 2020, one might have expected it to be a, a game changer, but it didn't turn out to be that way in terms of people's underlying policy preferences, I believe. What is the role of urbanization in the development of democratic institutions? Well, it's been thought for some time that just along with economic development, urbanization, which sort of goes hand in hand with economic development, is critical to... Uh, to democratization, moving people away from traditional rulers and thinking about traditional forms of political participation. Um, I'm not wholly convinced that that it's critical or that it's true. I think urbanization can happen without democratization. We see that in a number of countries today. Uh, I haven't taken a close look at that question statistically in recent years, so I don't want to pronounce it, but I would be I guess I'd be surprised if there was a big effect of urbanization on, on democratization today. Can you talk a little bit on your recent research on the origins of public debt in Europe? Right. Well, public debt, it's a little bit like, or it's a lot like even, the, the story of how uh, taxation and democracy go together, that the system of public debt in Europe evolved first in Europe's city-states. Uh, it evolved in larger kingdoms only later. And it was a system in which those who held power, the wealth holders who were in a city council, uh, were themselves often the state's biggest creditors. And because they had seats on the city council, they would know that they would be able to take the decisions from the municipality that would be necessary, say, in terms of levying um, taxes on common consumption goods or other sources so that the debt would be serviced uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, without, without defaulting. Uh, mm -hmm. So 
just as with taxation and democracy, there's a there's a there's a link between debt and democracy too. Although in that case, we have to remember we're not really talking about democracies in these medieval cities. We're talking about uh, city councils that were dominated by wealth holders, in which uh, apart from uh, a series of revolts that happened in the 14th century and onwards uh, often were oligarchies where the you know middle class people or poor people had very little say. Wouldn't you say lobbyists in a democratic system kind of play that same role then? Uh, lobbyists, yes. Uh, although, of course, they're not directly inside. They're not actually making the decisions themselves. But when you talk about... Um, a country like the U.S. today, which is far ahead in terms of lobbying compared to anyone, I think, and not necessarily in a good way, um, lobbyists have a tremendous influence on the the uh, the way in which legislation gets designed and and implemented. And they influence a lot of things, like let's say gun control. I know it's a very uh, what's it called a volatile subject to discuss, and no one wants to touch it with a ten foot pole. But it is something that, like, let's say women's right to like. Oh, what's it called, birth control, or let's say the NRA, it becomes very murky when they are able to like influence law. And then it's not completely democracy, right? Right. No, exactly. Because then you have an unequal, going back to that idea, do the people have power? What if the people desire to have um, some reasonable increased restrictions on on on, on, on guns um, of the sort that, you know, have been proposed. Uh, they might have one thing or they might desire one thing, but then once the legislation comes to be written, when it's drafted, um, we as ordinary people are not reading a whole long bill and seeing exactly how it's getting implemented. The implementation all goes to the bureaucracy and to lobbyists who influence that and so on. And so that's what can end up giving us a result that differs from what a lot of people might otherwise like. So what are your thoughts now? Historical lessons from the origin of democracy can be applied to promote democracy in a non-Western country? Well, I, I, I think one has to do with, uh, you know, there's a, supposedly John Bolton, the American neoconservative said that, you know, for Iraq, they should just read the Federalist Papers and that's what you need to do to set up a democracy. And I would argue that it's probably not at all the way to do it because that's a purely institutional view. Again, we've seen many countries adopt very nice constitutions that then end up not being respected and not working. I think the lessons from history for democratization today has to go back to thinking about what are the traditions of collective governance that might have preceded modern democracy in a country? What are the ways in which people get information about governance and do they trust it? Um, how are people connected to each other? Is there a feeling of polarization and division or is there some sort of broader uh, societal sense of, 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 of being? Uh, those are all critical things that need to be thought out when you think about whether the formal institutions of democracy are going to prove to be successful uh, in a country where they're just being implemented. What would you say, like, you know, the key factors one needs to consider when if it's, let's say, the idiot's guide to democracy, like you need these things need to be there in place, set in place? I think people need information about what's going on. I think people need to be not too divided amongst themselves. And those are sort of two critical things. Uh, again, coming back to this fact that I mentioned previously, uh, 
early democracies tended to be small scale affairs. Modern democracies are large scale affairs. It's not an obvious thing that they would work, that people will feel connected to governance and connected to each other. And so thinking about how those two things can happen is, is critical, uh, probably just as critical as getting the institutional rules right. How important is information? Because I know there's like these pockets of QAnon or the KKK or like the, everyone are like broken up into uh, factions and everyone believes that they're 100% right. And it's all based on information dissemination. And then also there's a whole big factor of my feelings are more important than facts. So as much information as you can drill down, it wouldn't change the way they think. And then that really hinders with policymaking. Oh, it does. And I think, you know, the problem today with phenomena like that is that we have a media environment where if you feel very strongly in a certain radical way, uh, you can live within your own little ecosystem where you only interact with people like yourself hmm. uh, and get information that you're already disposed to believe, even if it's completely wrong. And that's what's become so problematic, because it means that people just aren't confronted with obvious refutations of what they believe. And how does social media play into this? So like I've seen this common factor, like if I go on Instagram, I start liking like very similar posts or I search for similar profiles or like uh, content, I keep on seeing that. So it's like reinforcing that bias of information that I have, be it YouTube, be it Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, you name it. So yes, like you said, there's this bubble of information. Yeah, but, I think it, yes, there's, and there's actually a debate among people who work on social media about exactly how much that phenomenon happens. It certainly happens in a large number of cases. It's not clear that it's the predominant phenomenon or not. There are people that go on social media and use it in ways where they end up getting confronted with news sources they might dis, dis, you know, dis, uh, disagree with or something like that. So I think there are both types of people out there. But the problem is that it, for, for some types, it definitely does allow you to go down that rabbit hole of only connecting with um, things that you would already like to be connected with and people who believe the same thing. And, you know, unfortunately, when that's a radical thing that's incorrect, like saying that the election was stolen, uh, that becomes uh, deeply problematic. And how does one break out of that bubble? Because no one wants to know that they're wrong or whatever they believe is wrong. So I'll keep on looking and searching for information that agrees with what I think or what I've been told. That's a really tough one, right? Because uh, this, this new media environment has just sort of happened on its own, right? It's not, um, it's not something that a law was passed saying you may do this, right? Uh, mm. And so the, the question is in which, you know, which ways you could have legislation that holds platforms accountable for disinformation or something like that, but then you don't want, you know, so it, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a debate that gets really intricate. I'm not an expert in that area, but I think it definitely needs to happen. But then there's also this question about freedom of in, uh, freedom of speech, like Donald right. Trump being like taken off the platforms or like what's his name, Alex Jones being deplatformed. And there was this huge outcry from the other side saying that, you know what, like whatever he's saying, if you don't want to listen to it, stop listening to it, but let him speak. But then it's so dangerous. Yeah, no, that and that's a legitimate fear. I mean, even the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, said with respect to Twitter, he's he's anxious about the idea of a private company making these decisions as opposed to the government making these decisions or the courts making decisions about whether this should be protected as free speech or not. It's, you know, it's not clear that that's an ideal solution to having these, 
these platforms make that make that decision on their own because but, we don't elect them right so yeah but the, then there's another issue of the government systems or, or like you know the systems that is in place do not know how to address these problems they're not educated enough they don't have a department or let's say a group of professionals in the government who can even understand the way that this is working because they don't get basics so would you would you recommend that like maybe this is something that's new because these are new challenges that we're facing it's a new world yeah and there needs to be new investments in getting the people who are experts to to think about this as part of you know within the government so they can propose strategies to to deal with the issue i whole, wholeheartedly believe that let's go back a bit let's go let's talk about like history of democracies and different forms of government and like let's see talking about the middle east talking about other parts of the world where like what similar examples are there and like how did it evolve what what was common about them well so early democracy i i argue in the book uh, existed in a lot of different world regions you can find examples in north america that i've already referred to before european conquest you can find examples in in mesoamerica and what is today mexico you can find examples in pre-colonial india or sorry pre-colonial africa uh and and and, and elsewhere um and so it's 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 a phenomenon that was broad with council governance existing in a lot of different societies assembly governance uh it was very common um uh, it was not a rare thing uh you know that was restricted to one particular society or one group of societies in one particular region so i think that's probably the most critical thing to recognize and that goes against somewhat what we are or um, often taught about democracy as if you know we're often suggested as if democracy was invented in in one place at one time and it's true that the athenians were the ones who invented the language that we use to talk about democracy today in many ways um but they they are were not the first ones or the only ones to invent the practice what are the proofs that we have like is there text is there relics i mean what are we basing these on well so we know this from ethnographic accounts we know this from in some cases from archaeological accounts uh you know there's a, abundant evidence on this that differs depending upon the type of society and how far, far back it went um that this 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 early democracy existed uh, you've also mentioned something about the amazonians right about yes. democracy being there this one is a strange one because we didn't assume that they would be so evolved or like let's assume our version of evolved yeah i mean we we have more information from archaeologists on them than we used to uh, but there's still not a lot so it's pretty it's pretty speculative what exactly form of governance that they had but it's it, you know it's interesting just to know that there was these cases with female participation in politics apparently and female warriors that were you know 100 years ago that would be dismissed as sort of a myth that was thought up by Herodotus which was in, in, inaccurate and now we're coming upon archaeological evidence of um you know female fe- women skeletons who were obviously warriors because their legs are bowed from uh uh from horseback riding uh, over years and they have uh, you know sometimes buried with weapons and show examples of being wounded by by weapons of war so there's 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 something to go on there which is a uh, I don't know. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a curious and interesting story. So, what's the reason that like we as a collective want to work together? Humans are tribal in nature, but then is that something that's innate in us? Well, it's not innate. I think it's it's possible. Uh it's uh, something that humans um 
uh, you know, there's some, we're, we're a primate species, right? There are some primate species who almost universally have very hierarchical uh, ar social arrangements. There are some primate species that have much less hierarchical uh, uh, social arrangements. Humans are pr primates that have both. Sometimes we have in history very hierarchical social arrangements and sometimes um, very unhierarchical, more egalitarian social arrangements. So that's the interesting part in that there are two different routes uh, to governance that, that look very different um, from, you know, from members of the same species. Do you see us moving away from democracy anytime soon? Because I feel like there are flaws in the system. We, maybe you haven't figured it out. Like the, the big piece of the puzzle is missing. It requires continued effort and thought. Hmm. Uh, and maybe the institutions of democracy will need to evolve. Um, I am and optimistic about democracy in the broad sense because for the, exactly for the reason that I think democracy existed in, in pre-colonial times in a lot of different societies who thought it up on their own and uh, practiced it successfully, um, that it, it'll be with us. It's not, but that's different from saying, what do you think of the future of democracy in one individual country, like say the United States, where there I think uh, there's there's still a lot of fear about what could happen with the degree of polarization and the extent to which some people are contesting what were obviously legitimate elections. And so we still don't know what's going to happen in that regard with, with U.S. democracy and it's when it's going to be able to uh, survive in the way we would like. Do you see maybe it turning more global than based on countries? Like I know right now we live in a very global society where everyone's connected and basically mainly on social media, online, like you're in a different country and we're speaking over um, the internet. And that changes the way we interact with people, how policies are made, how co companies are run. And wouldn't that change the way governments are governed? It's possible. Although we'd have to think about what that looks like, because governments uh, are local, whereas mm. our links with others are increasingly transnational. Mm. Uh, and so that's you know that's a that's a that's a fundamental question about what happens once these transnational linkages between ordinary people happen more and more and more and more. Whereas our governments are still, we have governments and states that we think of that have our territorial states with strictly defined boundaries. Uh, and so that's an open question. Uh, I'm not expert on that question, but what what you know what is the evolution of the what is the future of the nation state in this new global environment? Do you see similarities with democratization of finance, like and money, like fiat currencies, like again based on countries? Okay, and then crypto came along. We're like, you know what? It's global. Everyone can. The, uh, the government doesn't control it. But then it's gone tits up to a certain degree. What are your opinions on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know. <laughs> The recipe of having a currency issued by a central bank that, you know, regulates banks, private banks in your country is still a very successful system, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any reason why we need to. Uh, and that's the, you know, the problem with crypto has been that you, you could do it entirely uh, in a decentralized fashion. And that was the way it was thought to bypass the banks. But then you get these exchanges that develop because the exchange ends up serving the purpose of what you might have thought of as a bank. They're sort of like, oh, we're safe. Uh, your money is secure with us. And it turns out it's not. And it turns out, why not just invest? You put your money in a traditional bank 
um, where uh, you have a regulator, uh, a central bank that's 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 looking at the banks and making sure they're not doing bad things with your money. But then aren't banks doing the same thing with our money? They're doing bad things with them. They're investing them in the wrong places and then there's a whole crash. And then we are in a position where we don't understand most, like the general public doesn't understand where the money went. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm not denying that our, you know, our current systems, um, we certainly had, uh, you know, in the Western world, a big, uh, big, big crap banking uh, problems in 2008, 2009, which made people think, geez, we should have, a lot of it due to regulations being stripped away that should have been still left there that allow the banks to do um, risky things that they shouldn't have been allowed to do because then it generates problems like that. So I'm not saying that system is perfect, but I'm not sure that the, the crypto alternative is, is better than the current system. That would seem not from recent evidence. What do you see the forecast for, let's say, five years from now? Let's not go that far. Let's say two years from now. There's massive inflation right now. The dot-com bubble is bursting. A lot of uh, companies are laying off a lot of people. And this is because there were no proper checks and balances. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like, where, Well, where that's, you... yeah, I mean, I think inflation is coming down. Um, what you are seeing with um, tech layoffs and things like that, I think that's a lot of, we're in a world where um, we were in a world from 2009 till very recently where interest rates from central banks were essentially zero. And so it was a period of easy money and in a period where people went and looked for returns elsewhere. And people made, you know, uh, took on debt that they thought could be serviced very cheaply. And now all of a sudden, because central banks have tried to raise interest rates, we're in a world where uh, there's no longer easy money. It's not it's not it's not free like it used to be. And that's hurting. That's going to cause adjustment uh, for a lot of people who whose economic strategy was based on the idea of interest rates staying extremely low. So what would you recommend to the layman here? Like, do you invest, you buy, you sell? What do you do? Um, don't invest in crypto, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Otherwise, that's, that's the only, that's the investment. I read the Financial Times every day and that seems, the Alphaville blog seems to be <laughs> provide an eminent uh, rationale not to, not to go that route. Is it going to get worse before it gets better or things are going to like pick up quickly? I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping that they improve quickly. It's certainly been a, 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 um, a challenging period, to say the least. Fair enough, yeah. I mean, I have no money invested in crypto. I, I don't understand it. I, I like I'm old school that way. I need like physically understand it should make sense. And it never did. Maybe I'm an idiot, but <laughs> that's fine. It's safe. Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have solved the problem it was uh, seeking to solve. I feel like from my side, maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I am. Is that uh, it started so quickly and there were no checks and balances. No one was like supervising this uh, quick change is that the case or is that completely like full -hearted? No, i think that's the case because a lot of these you know firms um if ftx was operating in the bahamas they were operating in behind the bahamas and not in the u.s for a reason right so, yeah. <laughs> yeah and it was a bunch of kids like they had no clue what they were doing or they may have had a i don't know they more they had a clue but they just did the wrong thing i'm yeah. not not sure to what extent it was accidental versus intentional Fair enough. Where can people find your work? Uh, your, can you tell us about your books? Uh, just go to stasavage.com, my website, and it'll have everything there. And, like and I'm your, also on Twitter as at stasavage. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you.